0: Well let me first of all respond to the words of welcome that have been addressed to me and to my wife Anne. it's always a joy for us to get here. Sometimes I only get over on my own but Both of us have travelled over this time, and it's a pleasure. Indeed, it's a joy. For us, we're very thankful to Mr. and Mrs. Toms Senior for their hospitality toward us, and it's a memorable time whenever we can get over here. It's especially a privilege for me to be here speaking tonight, In what is the hundredth year of the witness of the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony. It's a humbling thing to know that you're standing in the very footprints of great men who under God were given the privilege of raising again. A standard of truth that had sadly fallen, and that for many centuries. I like to remind people that what Martin Luther was with regards the reformed faith and principally the doctrine of justification by faith, I think we can say Benjamin Wills Newton and the faithful men who followed on and formed the Sovereign Grace Advent testimony performed a singular task and service to the people of God in these latter days by raising again the truth of God regarding the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am retired. I'm retired now ten years, but now and then I get out to preach among churches. And going back into the period when I was more active, it's amazing how often when I would preach on the second coming of the Lord Jesus and set forth the teaching, I believe, of the Bible... How many Christians would come to me and say, you know, we, ne- we never hear anybody preach about the second coming. Our minister never mentions it. And the minister they're referring to is a good man. But sadly, there are many good men who have fallen into the practice of ignoring the second coming of the Lord Jesus, and it was even more so the case before the raising of the standard by the sovereign grace, Advent, testimony, and men like Benjamin Wills Newton. I suppose there's something even worse than ignoring the truth of the second coming, and that is teaching falsehood concerning The second coming of the Lord Jesus. And for centuries. Whatever teaching there was. That went forth on this subject. Was false. False. I always find it sad. Whenever I consult. Commentaries. Good commentaries. Men. Whose name. We. Hesitate to. Say anything. Contrary to the standing that they have within the Christian community and yet in their commentaries you will find them again and again and again promoting that which is erroneous, that which is false regarding the second coming of the Lord Jesus and I always find it in me to sort of excuse them if teaching falsehood can be excused but I, I tend to forgive them And say to myself, well, you know, that's all they would have heard. That's what everyone around them virtually was teaching. But thankfully, I believe in these last days, God has stirred again his people. And through the witness of the Sovereign Grace Advent testimony, there has been a presenting of the truth concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Tonight we're looking at Matthew chapter 13. And the parable, short little parable, told by the Lord Jesus and the explanation he gave for the parable, that's important. (laughs) All too often people read the parable the Lord uttered and then they put their own interpretation on what it means. Well we don't have to do that because the Lord explained what it all meant. And we will do that. But before we go any further, let's just bow, please, in a wee word of prayer. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll help me now. There's none that knows better than Thee, Lord, just how much help I need. You know it even better than I do, Lord, and I know my failings and my weaknesses. But, O oh God, come. Stand by us tonight, and for the sake of thine honour and glory, and for the benefit of thy people, help us to set forth thy word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we come to the parable, let's just notice what we read in the opening verses of chapter 13. It says, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, and he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore, and he spake many things, many things. In the parables, there are many things. Sometimes we form the opinion regarding the parables that are very, very simple, very elementary. Teachings, and yet there are many things set forth even in this parable that we will be looking at there are many things set forth I'm somewhat conscious that you have been urged to purchase Benjamin Will's commentary on this uh, parable I perhaps should have consulted it more closely myself uh, before tonight but I'm saying this uh, as it were uh, so that when you do consult it and find that oh he says this and Foster never said that and he says this and Foster never said that well you'll understand that there are many things that could be said about this parable because the Lord is teaching a multiplicity of truths here and tonight we're going to concentrate upon the Aspects of the parable that deal with the coming of the Lord and what it is leads up to that. It would be very nice if you came to uh, Mr. Will Newton's commentary and said, you know, he never said and Foster said that. That would be nice. Mm -hmm. Whether that happens or not, I don't know for I'm afraid long forgotten what it is that Mr. Benjamin Wills-Newton said in that particular commentary. However, let's just look then at this parable and consider what it is the Savior has to say. I think you know that there is always a need for us to seek the Lord when studying his word for a right understanding of what it is he says. Every day we misunderstand what people say to us and sometimes there are serious consequences as a result but none so serious as when we misunderstand what it is God says. That's inexcusable on our part. For though, as Isaiah says, his thoughts are not our thoughts and his Ways are not our ways. Nevertheless, the Lord stands ever so ready to help us and teach us. It's wrong for us to just place upon his word our own notions. Men do that. Men do that most commonly. Most commonly. But it's very wrong. You will notice here that the disciples set us an example for we have not only the parable beginning there at the verse 24 but then we have the Saviour's explanation Verse begins at verse 36 Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and the disciples came unto him saying Declare unto us The parable of the tares of the field. That's that's a precedent. Set by the disciples. That we ought to take notice of. They didn't understand. What it was the saviour had to say. But they didn't then go away. And say well I'll, I'll work it out for myself. Which of course would have led to many. False Notions being formed no they went to the Lord and they said declare unto us or explain that's what they're saying explain the parable to us and that's what we ever should do you know whenever we come to the word of God even what we consider the most common or the simplest portions of God's word we ought to think about the prophetic teaching of this parable tonight and I trust the Lord will Help us uh, as we uh, study the matter together. The first thing I want you to notice from the parable is that the Lord would have his people to know that satanic activity is to be expected right up until the end of this age. The growing of the tares continues until the harvest. And we're told that the tares are the children of the devil. So the activities of the devil, the promoting of his falsehood, his lies, his whole cause, will continue right until the harvest. Now that's important for us to notice for for the simple reason that it contradicts uh, some very commonly believed notions about the return of Christ there is a system of belief concerning the return of Christ that is called post millennialism and that system Broadly speaking, teaches that the Lord Jesus is going to return after the millennial reign has been established. Not by him, but by Christians in this world, preaching the gospel and spreading the truth so that the world becomes Christianized. And for a lengthy period, they don't take literally... The words in Revelation 20, where we are told it will be for a thousand years, not once, twice, three, four, five times, but six times we're told a thousand years. But those who teach this particular view of post-millennialism, they'll not stick to the literal meaning of the word, and they'll say that for a lengthy period of time the world is going to enjoy a wonderful time of blessing. As the gospel has spread. And virtually conquers the world. But that's not what the Savior says. He says. That. Right up to the end. The tears are there. And flourishing. Flourishing. I I might. Note with you now. Although I'm sure I'll come back to it. uh, That. When it's discovered that the tares are growing, the servants of the man who owns the field and who had sown the good seed, they say, will we tear them up? Will we root them out? But he said, no, you leave them alone because you will do more damage in trying to do that. Just leave them until the harvest time. And that's an emphasizing of the fact that the tares are going to be there, and going to be working, and doing their their evil task, right up to the harvest. And though the child of God wishes that he could stop and could end the activities of the devil and his children, we have to put up with it until the harvest. So as I say, This does away with the notion that the world is going to become Christianized and there's going to be uh, almost a total elimination of the activities of the devil. Uh, And after a lengthy period of enjoying such things, then the Lord will come. That's, That's not the teaching of this parable. That's not the teaching of the Savior. I might also note with you that what is stated here contradicts the views held by many. Many good people. Many who sincerely love the Lord. The view that I'm referring to is that of a secret rapture. The people who believe in a secret rapture as taught by J.N. Darby and his disciples believe that well, there's a A divergence of opinion among them. Some say seven, some say three and a half years before the Savior comes. There will be a secret removal of the saints of God to heaven. But that's not what the parable teaches. Instead we are told that when there was this desire to root up the tares. The servants who wanted to do that were told, let them both, the wheat and the tares, grow together until the harvest. So they're both there until the harvest. And the harvest is, the Savior tells us, the end of the age. We have it in our Bible as the end of the world. But the word used, translated there, world, is the word aeon from which we rightly should understand the saviour speaking of an age. And so we're both, they're both together to the end of this age. And it is to be noted that when the harvest does come, we are told that the angels go forth and they cut down the tares first. Not, not the saints, carried away first. Notice the tares are dealt with first, and then the wheat is carried into the uh, barn. That's the very opposite, you know, to what J.N. Darby taught his people, and which is very commonly believed in many places. But we see here, and that by a mere cursory glance at this parable, that that runs contrary to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now having touched upon those two matters which lie on the very surface, let us notice just how we are told that the activities of the devil are going to continue right up to the end of this age. You'll see that the devil is active through his children. The damage is done in the wheat field By an enemy coming and sowing seed. And the Lord Jesus tells us that the seed is the offspring of the devil. Verse 38. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. So the devil carries on his evil work through his offspring. It's a solemn thing for us to meditate upon the relationship between the devil and the unsaved. He is their father. It is that of a father to a child. It's humbling, you know, that each one of us can look back on a day when we served one who was the devil and we were knit to him as a child is to a father. When we speak of father and child we always think of a likeness between the two we also think of a love between the two and of course a father likes to see his offspring engaged in the same sort of labors as he is engaged in and you find that in the case of the devil the lord jesus in John chapter 3 the verse 19 that great chapter where there are so many uh, tremendous truths and here's one of them John 3 and 19 the Savior says and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil that's that's the love of the natural man he loves darkness You remember how in the parable we are told that the enemy came while men slept. The tares were sown in the darkness of the night. And they have the nature of darkness about them. And they love darkness. That's how it was. It's a humbling thing to think that once we love darkness. Once we love the things of darkness. Going on in, in John's Gospel, you will find in the chapter 8 how the Saviour, in a very bold fashion, told those who were challenging him and questioning him, he told them their pedigree. I, I love the boldness of my Saviour when it came to preaching. It's a boldness that is rarely seen in pulpits. Very rarely seen in pulpits. Look at what we read in the verse 41 of chapter 8. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they unto him, We be not born of fornication, we have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil. and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar, and the father of it. That was putting the truth very plainly. We need, of course, today such plain preaching. Men need to be told the, the state of their heart and of their 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 mind and soul. They need to be told of their lost condition. It's a wearying thing that the average uh, sermon in pulpits today is one in which the sinner is applauded. I'm always grieved, you know, when I read reports of people who have died suddenly, maybe in accident, or sadly, maybe they have taken their own life. And in the midst of the lamentations that naturally are expressed by families, then there is the statement, but at least they're at peace. And oh, I cringe. They're not at peace. They're not at peace if they died in the state in which the Saviour here paints the picture of humanity. If they died as children of the devil. And there is only one place that they can go to. The devil is active in this age through his children. And you'll notice that his children are everywhere. The field of the world. And everywhere you find the children of the devil. Everywhere you find the gospel, you will find the children of the devil at work. Indeed, I suppose, everywhere someone wants to plant the gospel truth, they will find the area already occupied by the tares, by the children of the wicked one. That's why the world is as it is. That's why the world is as it is. It's occupied by those who are the children of the devil, who promote his cause and further his plans and his purposes and resist, resist the purpose and the plans of God and that's why Christianity, that's why the people of God have such a difficult time in this world. When Israel came into the land promised to them by God it was occupied, occupied by heathens. Occupied by pagans. Occupied by those who are sunk down in the deepest of depravity. It's perhaps forgotten. That the purpose of God in bringing Israel into the promised land. Was not only to give Israel the promised land. But also to use Israel to punish. The occupants. The previous occupants. Who had so. Yielded to depravity. That Israel became God's instrument of judgment upon them. In that land. And that's that's the state of the world. That's where men are. We see it happening in our land. With grief I'm sure. We see the lapsing down into a darkness. We see as it were the weeds taking over. For once The flowers of grace and beauty flourished. Oh, everywhere in the world, the children of the devil are to be found. And we have to note, the Savior tells us here, that at first, the children of the devil, in order to promote their cause, bear some resemblance to God's people. The enemy came at night, and he sowed the seed. And we read in verse 26, But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. They didn't appear until a certain degree of growth had taken place. Only then it became evident that there was amongst the wheat an alien growth. That which wasn't wheat. And it pleases the devil. To advance his cause. By seeking to counterfeit. The people of God. Uh, We have many examples of that in, in, in scripture. But. What harm has been done. By those who look like Christians but are not Christians, who are received as Christians and heeded and listened to and followed as Christians, but they're not Christians. What harm has been done as a result of this counterfeiting? When they do become apparent that they are not (coughs) weak, you see then that the servants. Uh, rise up and say oh we have to do something about this verse 27 they said uh, unto their master sir didst not thou sow good seed in the field from whence then hath it tares and he said unto them an enemy hath done this the servants said unto him wilt thou then that we go and gather them up wilt thou then that we go and gather them up You know, that spirit of enmity that is evidenced there is very proper. It is proper, Christian, to be vexed and grieved and angry at the ways of sinners. Very proper. We have a day in which we are taught that it's most improper to be intolerant toward wrong. Everybody is to tolerate anything and everything. No matter what is said or what is done. We, we should tolerate it. But that is wrong. That is wrong. The spirit here of these sermons is the spirit that ought to be in every child of God. Wherever they see a manifestation of the activities of the devil. They should feel within them desire to oppose it. And I say it's very proper because that spirit of animosity, that spirit of opposition has been placed in us by God. Genesis chapter 3 and in the verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, the Lord is speaking, and He's speaking to the devil. He says, "I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed." Principally, her seed there that's referred to is the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that belong to Him have that enmity. That God has placed within the heart of his people. Stemming from the Savior. With whom there was enmity put toward the ways and the works of the devil. It's proper Christian. Oh today Christians have become so mealy mouthed. Who feel ashamed that they should in any way feel critical of the ways of wickedness. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. We should rise up and speak out. We should speak out. Wearies me? At the political correctness that has become institutionalized. It's become law. When you meet someone doing wrong, you back off. You say they have a right. That's what they desire to do. And we mustn't in any way infringe upon them. My dear friend, if you take that notion to its full conclusion, you would open the doors of every jail there is and let them out and say they have a right to the criminal ways that they have been pursuing. Of course, there is always a limit to the toleration that these people who preach tolerance and one of the most obvious limitations that you find manifested is that they are very intolerant of your view in the Bible when you say the Bible says oh, you can say Islam teaches, you can say the Sikh religion teaches, you can say Buddhism teaches And everybody will say, wonderful, wonderful, we must try and accommodate you. But when you say, the Bible teaches, then you run into a brick wall and there is great opposition to you producing and promoting such a view. Oh, I tell you, we need to Return to the teachings of God's word, recognize that it is but right for us to be in opposition to those who, who would promote the devil's cause, oftentimes under the guise under the guise of Christianity. There's not a there's not a prelate in our country. I think I can say that without fear of contradiction not a prelate in our country but preaches falsehood he doesn't preach Christianity the senior members of of the established church and other denominations they stand up and, and they preach that which is a lie from the devil they do it in God's name they likely do it with the Bible open on the pulpit before them but it's still a lie and it's swallowed by millions. And we're too, too mealy-mouthed when it comes to our response to such a thing. We should be crying out against them. As a Presbyterian, you know, I like the story of the wee lady in Edinburgh when it was a attempted to read what was nothing less really than uh, the Romish Mass being introduced to Scottish Presbyterianism. And Jenny Geddes got up of her stool and took her stool and she fired at the head of the old bishop that was initiating this dreadful revolution. And she said to him in the strong Scottish brogue, You'll no say the mass in my log," And that started what we call or initiated I think I'm right in saying what we call the second reformation in Scotland I tell you we need more Jenny Geddes though perhaps I should say that when we see here the master saying to the servants no you'll not pull them up we are to resist we are to oppose but we're not to use violence the Lord will never sanction the use of the sword In the promoting of the kingdom of Christ. That's why he rebuked Peter. When Peter drew the sword in his passion. And in his enthusiasm. And in his desire to see his master spared from what it was these evil men had planned for him. He took the sword and he took a swipe at one of them. He cut off his ear. I have no doubt he meant to cut off more than his ear. But providentially, that's all he managed to do. But the Lord rebuked him. Rebuked him publicly. And then healed the wound. Because the Lord's cause is not promoted by the sword. We must resist by speaking out. We must resist with the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. We must preach it. Fearlessly. No matter what the consequences are. Then... Let me move quickly to a second point. As time passes, the tares lose all likeness they may have had to the wheat. It became evident that there was this alien growth. I'm not sure whether you're that familiar with what would take place in the wheat field when the seed is grown. But you can imagine... At the first, there would just have been the shooting up of green leaves. Both tares and wheat. They would produce very similar green shoots and they grow and they grow. But as they developed, they took on a different appearance. And soon it became apparent th- that there were tares here and that not all was wheat. And I tell you this, uh, men and women, that... As as the age progresses, remember in the parable, the age in which we live is set before us under the image of the sowing process, and then the growing process, and then the harvest process. There's an advancing through the age, a development of things through the age. and. I believe the Saviour is telling us here, as is taught in other parts of Scripture, that as the age develops and we come nearer and nearer the end of the age, the devil's crowd will become more and more obviously opponents of what is good and what is righteous. Now, I mentioned post millennialism, I mentioned the secret rapture views. Uh, promoted by the early brethren. Maybe I could say a word on amillennialism because it teaches that we are in the millennium now. We're in the millennium now. We believe that Revelation chapter 20 teaches us that when the Savior comes, there will immediately begin a wonderful, wonderful time. A wonderful time. And that time is marked, Revelation chapter 20, by the binding of the devil. The binding of the devil. Then the saints of God glorified reign with the Savior for a thousand years. Verse 3 of Revelation 20. Now, if we are to believe that at the present time we are living through that which is set forth here in Revelation chapter 20, then we are required to believe that the devil is not as active as he would like to be. But that's not the picture presented in the parable. The picture presented in the parable is of the tares growing and growing and growing and growing right up until the harvest time. They're not in any way hindered. They're not in any way put down or poisoned or rooted up, but they're growing and developing right up until the harvest time. So I would suggest to you that The teaching of amillennialism that sets forth the fact, as it would say is a fact, that Satan is presently bound, the earth is not deceived by him, the saints are reigning with Christ, is just not true. It's just not true. But rather, as the parable sets before us, the saints are forced to occupy the world alongside the tares are forced to put up with. The ways, the words, the actions, the views, the intolerance, the wickedness of the tares. And far from the situation presented to us in Revelation 20 of victory. Victory! We are not in that place of victory today. Eh, millennialism is not at all accurate and those who promote it are wrong very wrong and they have no support in the word of God at all to advance Uh, what is a a, a wicked lie and I only wish that men would give serious thought to what it is they're advancing I'm not going to go any further with that though my mind is buzzing with 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 thoughts that I could present to you in opposition to what it is a millennialists teach, but sufficient for us to notice that there is no question, no suggestion of the world before the Saviour returns ever entering into a time of bounty and, and peace and victory and joy, and as is set forth in Revelation 20, rather. As Revelation 20 teaches, it comes after the Saviour's return. And it's, the tares are there until after the harvest. And then they are dealt with. And I, I believe that though at first the tares may have looked somewhat like, somewhat like the wheat, they became more and more obviously not the, the wheat. And that's what we're seeing today in the professing Church of Jesus Christ. We're seeing the image of those who say they're Christians. Indeed, in most instances, they're in places of leadership and influence. They say they're Christians, and yet they are more and more taking on a likeness to the devil and losing any resemblance that there may have been in former times between the offspring of the devil and the people of God. It's epitomized for us in the story of Judas. Always, you know, in the Bible, every doctrine has its illustration. Many, many varieties of illustration. And what I'm saying is, is perhaps... Uh, for me the best thing to do is to, to point you to that picture of Judas at the first there wasn't one within that apostolic band ever suspected Judas indeed right up to the very end when the saviour finally said one of you is a traitor not one of them said ah I, I knew that fellow Judas wasn't what he, what he was saying he was not one of them In fact, they said, is it me, Lord? Not one of them. Not one of them. Saw in Judas the character, the true character of the man. But finally he came out. Finally he came out. And he betrayed the Lord, as we know. He went to the enemies. He sold the Savior. And he then, in the garden, identified the Lord Jesus. And you know, you learn something, let me tell you, every time you read the Bible. We read in Matthew chapter 26. The verses 47 to 49. Lord Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign saying whomsoever I shall kiss that same as he hold him fast and forthwith he came to Jesus and greeted him hail master and kissed him do you know what that word hail means it's translated in the earlier part of Matthew by a very familiar word to you. If you turn to Matthew chapter two, and the verse ten, and when they saw the star, I, I don't have to tell you what this is referring to. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. The word "healed" is there, translated rejoiced. So here's Judas. Knowing what it is he's doing. Knowing the wickedness that's involved. And yet he says, Rejoice, Master. My dear friend, when wicked men begin to take joy in their wickedness, then things have become very dark indeed. Very dark indeed. Judas had concealed, had covered over his his evil heart very very well but then there came the day when he came right out into the open and rejoiced in his wickedness in his betraying of the Lord Jesus Christ he kissed the saviour joyfully as he betrayed we're beginning to see that you know we're beginning to see men say the most vile things and say it joyfully The Archbishop of Canterbury some time ago was exhorting his flock how they must embrace sodomy, how they must embrace uh, same-sex marriages. This is wonderful. We have to enthusiastically embrace it. I tell you it's the spirit of Judas. When men rejoice in sin, we're getting near the end. We're getting near the The tares are reaching their fullness when this begins to happen. Yes, the third point I want to press, and I've already touched upon it, and that is as autumn approaches, the tares reach their fullness. This world is going to get worse and worse. That is the teaching of the Bible. That is one of the central doctrines of, of The Sovereign Grace Advent testimony and its witness. And all who hold to the teaching of the Bible, which we call futurism. The world is not going to get better. It's not going to become Christianized. It's going to become devilized, if I might invent a word. That's what it's going to become. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. How many times have you in a meeting been asked to turn to that verse? You know it well. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. That's where the world is heading. Perilous times. I would say that I probably would be right in saying that you have often said things surely can't get any worse and then you read the next day's newspaper. And They are getting worse every day. Every day they're getting worse. They're getting worse and we're becoming blind to it. We're getting so used to it. We don't notice the The murder of children. The abusing of children. The abusing of elderly people. To the most trivial of causes. And we see it almost going on without any real success. By the forces of law and order. Against such. Crime is rampant on the streets of London. As. As you well know, because perilous times are coming. It's interesting <clears throat> that that word perilous only appears two times in the Bible. Here in Second Timothy chapter 3 and the verse 1 and then in Matthew chapter 8 and the verse 28. Again, it's a familiar portion. The Savior has gone across the lake of Galilee to the land of Gadara. And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two, possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, So that no man might pass by that way. Now our word is in there. It's translated by the English word. Fierce. Exceeding fierce. That's the sort of days are coming. Exceeding fierce. And I would suggest to you. That you have in this picture here. A prophetic picture. When the Lord Jesus comes into this world, as was the case here, for I think I would be right in saying that these two men were likely the worst cases of devil possession the Saviour had encountered. I think I would be right in saying that. Well, likewise, when the Saviour comes to this world, he's going to encounter two men. Who will be the worst examples of devil possession. Revelation chapter 13. In Revelation chapter 13 we're introduced to two individuals. One is the Antichrist. And he does all that he does by the power of the devil. And then in the verse 11 we read And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth and I skip a few words and he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and caused the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. The beast of the Antichrist the beast of the and the false prophet, the Antichrist and the false prophet, they will be the two worst examples of men possessed of the devil that the world has ever known. And the Savior will meet them when he comes. Meet them to destroy them. Meet them to destroy them. And it's when the tares have reached their full growth that the harvest comes. The harvest comes. You know as things get darker. It's good to know. That the end is drawing near. The darker it gets. The closer we are to the end. The worse the sin of the world becomes. The closer we are to Jesus coming again. Because as the tares ripen. So God sharpens his scythe. Ready for the cutting down of the wicked my last point that I want to quickly make to is this I want us to consider the destination of the tares the verse 40 says as therefore the tares were gathered and burned in the fire so shall it be in the end of this world or the end of the age as I explained that's the end of the wicket. There's no punishment for sin in the world's regime. More and more we have seen men (coughs) retreat from the punishment of wrongdoing. Children are not allowed to be disciplined. Not allowed to be disciplined. You know if they were disciplined in many instances they wouldn't suffer the Sad abuse. You know, every day you read of a father shaking his child because the child won't stop crying, or a mother beating her child because of his what will we call it rebellious antics in the house. I, I've I've read stories of. Mothers totally at a loss to know how they can handle their five-year-old, their six-year-old, their seven-year-old. I've heard of teachers who are terrorized by children in first and second primary school. Because there's no discipline. There's no discipline. A little discipline, lovingly applied, would spare children children much abuse, I do believe. And society would benefit from proper disciplining of wrong and wickedness. It would. We'll not go into that, but suffice for me to point to you this fact that God believes in discipline. And God believes in punishing wrong. And God's punishment is most terrible. He is going to burn Burn the tares. And quite literally, that's the end of wicked men. The eternal fires of God's judgment. We we, we say that although we are at a loss to truly comprehend what that means. The last verse of Revelation chapter 20 says, And whosoever was not written, found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's a terrible fate. That's a terrible fate. And because as we look at what God teaches us here regarding what awaits poor sinners, While it encourages us to know that wrong will be dealt with and that those who have grieved us and vexed us and harmed us and plagued us and maligned us and slandered us will will be dealt with by God. While, While there is that which will sustain us in those truths, surely there is also Hear that which will stir our heart to feel for the sinner. When Abraham heard that God was going to destroy Sodom. He took to praying. And I tell you this Christian. When we read of the fate that awaits the sinner. The, the, the rebel against God. When we read of that faith, it should cause us to fall on our knees to pray for them. That the God of mercy might spare some. Your own family, your own friends, your neighbors, your workmates. You should pray for them. Wicked and all as they may be, that God would spare them. When the Lord Jesus told Jerusalem... That their day was over, that the opportunity God had given to them to repent of their sin and embrace the truth that would bring them everlasting life, as He told them He did it with tears. He wept for Jerusalem. I I acknowledge it. It's an enigma. The Saviour pronounces judgment and weeps. He weeps. We too should weep for poor sinners when we know what it is that faces them. Paul the Apostle, let me read you his words in Romans chapter 9. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. He says all that, you know, by way of introducing something that many people might find it difficult to believe he was sincere in saying. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. He says, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed From Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Think of that. I could wish that I were accursed from Christ. The longing of Paul, the passion of Paul for those who did him so much harm. his brethren according to the flesh, the Jews, they did him so much harm and in the end were the cause of his martyrdom. But Paul says, I could could almost wish myself damned. I think, in my view, that is that the nearest a human being a converted human being has come to that which filled the heart of my Saviour. For you see, he didn't merely wish, but he was damned for sinners. That's what happened at the cross. The wrath of God that was my Jew upon the Lamb. Was led. And by the shedding of his blood. For me. The price. He paid. He bore my damnation. And Paul this great great man is saying. I I could almost. Do the same. I don't think a human being could actually do the same. But Paul. Expresses the nearest thing to that which the Lord Jesus put into action. I tell you, our knowledge concerning how it all is going to end for the wicked should encourage us, yes. Thankfully, we will one day know the victory. But also, it should make us feel passionately, prayerfully, lovingly and tenderly for the poor sinner and warn them Of wrath to come. Wrath to come. Do you do it? Have you members of your family that you've never yet spoken to? Concerning wrath to come. Members of your family that tomorrow. Could be an eternity. And that without you having ever said. There's danger ahead. Let's learn from this parable that truth, if nothing else. May the Lord bless his word, poor and all the preaching has been.